the Lord, our rock and our redeemer. I pray that we don't sing those lyrics without passion or conviction or hope or or confidence. You rose the grave and death are conquered, God. You broke my bonds of sin and shame. That's that's the reason we're here, Lord. That's what makes us excited to be here. There's no other place, Lord, I, I would rather be than right here, right now. Lord, You know us all intimately and You know from where each one of us come from this week, what we've faced and what we've struggled with and what we've found delight in and hope in and how we've come through, where we may currently be stuck, You know all of it. Every last detail. I petition You this morning, Lord, to minister to us where we're at with this text. To work into our hearts. To be gracious to meet with us. Lord, every good thing that we have comes only from You. And it doesn't matter how good I've been or how much I've prepared or or where all of our hearts are at this morning. The the fact is, if You do not show up and and be gracious to, to meet with us and to put Your Word into our hearts and apply it to our lives, this is all a missed opportunity. Please, Lord, take advantage of this moment. Conform us to Your likeness. Thrill our hearts to You. Let us behold the wonder that You would meet with us and relate to us. We can't express enough how dependent we are upon You, Lord. We're thankful that you know even better than us. So work in our hearts now. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to take your Bibles with me this morning and open them to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. Luke's Gospel, chapter 18. Today we come to uh, really... A very wonderful and glorious text of Scripture that touches on the Christian spiritual discipline of prayer, but really draws our hearts more affectionately to God and why we're able to pray. In short, I would say what makes prayer possible and what makes it wonderful is simply that God wants it to happen. That, that's all of our lives in a nutshell, right? We have life. We exist in this universe. We exist in creation only because God wants us to. We have salvation only because God wants it. We're here this morning only because God wants it. And we only have the privilege of prayer and approaching God in prayer because God wants us to. And that's a simple truth that we're really going to major on from this text this morning in Luke chapter 18. God 
wants you to pray, and in that prayer life, God wants to commune with you. God wants us to be in His presence, and God wants us to enjoy His presence. And that's what makes it possible, and that's what makes it wonderful. You realize, if God didn't want you, you would not be His. If God didn't want you to pray, you could not come to God in in any possible fashion. If God didn't want you to have life and exist in creation, you would never exist. We're here and we have access to the Father because He wants it. We can, Hebrews 4.16, draw near to the throne of grace in confidence because it is the desire of God for us to do so. And not just desire, but the, the wonderful part is it's the, 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 the deli- uh, delight of God. It's the delight of God for us to draw near and, and have communion with Him, relationship with Him. And that's where all of our confidence and, and all of our hope and all of our enjoyment in the presence of God through prayer comes from. So, we need a passage in like, like Luke 18, 1-8, where we're going to be this morning. We need a text of Scripture like this uh, because uh, we need to be people in God's presence, right? And coming to God's presence in prayer through Christ is often a difficult task. Various things arise. Hindrances in our own hearts and, and experiences in our own lives and doubts in our own minds and, and the little faith that you and I possess as dependent children and creatures. Lots of things get in the way to make prayer difficult. But, but this text, we need it because it reminds us God wants us pray, to be encouraged, to be reminded, to be taught what God thinks about us coming to Him in relationship. So look with me in Luke chapter 18, verse 1. Luke reports and he says, Jesus told them, the disciples, Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And he said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For for a while, verse 4, he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? We're going to divide this text into two main points with several subpoints under each. Uh, the first is just in verse 1 alone. It's the, the, the instruction that God would have us to be a people of prayer. Verse 1, the instruction that we would be a people of prayer. It's the point of the whole parable and passage told to us right up front, right at the onset. And And what's remarkable, I don't want us to just skip over, is that it's coming from the mouth of the Lord. We might look at verse 1 and we say, okay, this is the point of the parable. Let's move on to the parable and see what it says. But we have to consider the truths that come out in verse 1 because they're 
They're glorious truths and they set the stage for exactly what Jesus is saying. It's not just a clear lesson in how we are to pray. It's a clear lesson that God wants us to pray. And those are two huge differences of enormous significance. So let's consider both of those first. First, understand verse 1 is an instruction. And by implication of it being an instruction, it expresses God's desire for us. And He tells us, pray. Be a people of habitual, persistent prayer. Now, as we understand and consider what prayer is, we understand that prayer is a relational discipline, isn't it? It can't happen unless there's fellowship and communion with God. If you're not saved to know God, you won't be able to pray. So prayer, by very its very design, is relational. Which tells me that if God is wanting and instructing us to pray, He's wanting and instructing us to walk in a relationship with Him. Which church is, is the Gospel, isn't it? Again, we're saved to God. This, this great chasm existed before we came to know Christ. This great canyon separated us. And God so loved sinful, broken, rebellious, unrighteous people that He sent Jesus to cross and bridge that canyon that we might have a relationship with Him. You're not saved to a religion. And you're not saved to a set of rules. And you're not saved to a law even. You're saved to God. And that's significant. In fact, as the Bible walks through various passages of Scripture discussing the Gospel, it it routinely talks about the relationship that we're to have with God. You go back to that passage we read earlier this this morning. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Because we're justified, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Which means we go from being enemies separated by sin from a holy God to now united to a holy God in peace. And if you go down further in that chapter, it's even more remarkable. Verse 6, Jesus Christ at the right time died for the ungodly, those who are opposite of God. In verse 8, God shows His love to us in that while we were what? Still sinners before we had anything to offer, before we were good or beautiful or anything like that, God died for us. Christ died for us. Fast forward to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, verse 18. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away, the new has come. All of this, verse 18 says, is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. The word reconcile means to reestablish a relationship. And specifically in that verse and in the New Testament, it means to reestablish a relationship as in marriage. There's this unity that takes place in being reconciled to God. This oneness that takes place. Like the oneness we experience in our marriage covenants between a man and a woman. So that in texts like Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born under... Born of a woman, born under the law to what? Redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because we are sons and daughters, that goes on to say, 
God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying what? Abba, Father. So therefore, we are no longer slaves, but we are sons. And if sons, heirs with Christ. You see the relational aspect of the Gospel? Christ has come and worked salvation in our hearts so that we might come to God as Abba Father. That's the most intimate form we can approach a father with. Crying out to Him in the most intimate of of ways possible. It tells us that Christ has come to save us to God to have a relationship with Him. And God so values that relationship and so cares about that relationship that in verse 1 of chapter 18, He tells us, be persistent in it. That's the implied lesson of verse 1. I want you to value fellowship with Me. I'm instructing you to be a people of habitual, persistent prayer because I want to be with you. And I want you to be with Me. Church, verse 1 of chapter 18 is a glorious, glorious truth. Make no mistake, prayer is many things. But it is nothing less than uniting to God in fellowship, in relationship. We can define it in many, many ways, but we can never define it as anything less than a relationship with God. So that's the implied lesson of verse 1 in the instruction form. The very fact that He would instruct us to pray means that He wants us to relate to Him. The very definition of prayer, or the word prayer, Prayer implies that as well. You you don't pray to inanimate objects, right? Or some mysterious force. You pray to God. So God is saying, come to me. Be near to me. Relate to me. The second portion of verse 1 is Him explaining how to pray. And there are two phrases in here that you've no doubtedly picked up upon on how to pray. The first one is, He tells us to always pray. He wants us to be people of habitual, consistent prayer. Which tells me something significant as well. God doesn't get tired of you. Always be praying. You're not going to annoy God. You're not going to come to Him too many times. And I don't know about you guys, but for me, that's intensely personal and liberating. We've all been around children who go through this developmental age where they've discovered the question why and they ask it a million times a minute. And you watch them come up or come through the door and you think, oh no, they're here. And they're going to ask and I'm going to have to answer and eventually ignore and eventually hide. But God is not that way with us, church. God lets you ask why as many times as you want. God lets you petition as many times as you need. God lets you make requests and intercede. God lets you come and just talk about his talk about your day with him. God lets you come and just express what he means to you. God doesn't get tired of us. And no matter what you're going through in life, no matter what you're 
dealing with, no matter what your marriage is like or your your relationships with your family members or friends or coworkers is like, no matter all the hardships, that truth is a concrete, liberating, confidence-inducing truth. That you might have everybody else in the world mad at you, but God doesn't get tired of your presence. Always pray, He says. Now we'll come to verse 9 through 14 next week, hopefully, and um, consider that He he does expect us to come to Him in a certain way, but the point of this morning's passage is that He wants us to come to Him nonetheless. He doesn't need a break from us. He doesn't want us to leave Him alone. And as children of God who believe the Scriptures and, and come to know the person of God, we ought to never entertain the thought or the temptation that God would be fed up with us. Secondly, he tells us in verse 1 of chapter 18, always be praying, but also don't lose heart. Or don't give up. Which again, I find to be rather significant. Because it's now not only that God doesn't get tired of us, but He's actually telling us, keep coming to Me. More and more and more and more and more. Don't give up. Approach Me. Approach Me. Approach Me. Why would God say that? That's the, that's the overarching question that we're asking here this morning, or will ask this morning. And ultimately, it's because of the Gospel, right? He's invested too much at the cross to ignore your company. To ignore your presence. Or to have you ignore His. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. Keep praying. We are tempted from time to time to think that God doesn't hear us. Or that God must not want to answer. Or that we're not good enough to come before God and we should just stop praying and move on. That's a temptation that's real. And we do have to confess, don't we, that for, for reasons beyond us, sometimes God delays in giving us an answer for a moment in time. He does it for a good purpose and a good reason. Nothing of God is meaningless. But sometimes He does delay. And yet in those moments... God would still say to us from verse 1, don't lose heart. Persist on and press in and keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. Which tells me that I should seek Him more diligently and pursue Him more fervently and pray to Him more passionately that I ought to be devoted. So verse 1 is packed full of God's admonition that He delights in our company and, and us coming to Him so much so that He would tell us, always be praying to Me and don't give up. Keep pushing. Keep persisting. Be habitually devoted to coming before Me in prayer. The rest of this text is answering why that's possible. Because you're not allowed to come before God because of anything good in you. This persistence and, and uh, continued pressing into the presence of God in prayer isn't because you've been good enough or you're a great prayer that God just wants to hear you. 
That's not what's going on. So why is this possible? How is this possible? It's all in the rest of the text. Verse 2 through A. It's because of the person of God. God has a reason for everything that He does and everything that He instructs us. And He instructs us to seek Him in prayer because He knows that's our ultimate need to be with Him. And that's where our ultimate delight and joy can come from. So He made a way and then He encourages us in that way. He shares this parable to illustrate His point. Jesus does in verse 2 down through verse 5. And we'll consider the parable and then in verse 6, 7, and 8 Jesus explains this parable to get across the point that God wants us to be people of devoted, persistent prayer. As we come to consider the rest of this text, we'll find out it's not so much about prayer as it is about the person of God. And the person of God is what informs and enables us to approach Him in such a fashion as verse 1. Look in verse 2. We come to an unnamed location, an unnamed city, with two unnamed characters in the parable. The first one we encounter in verse 2 is a judge, and he's described as not fearing God nor respecting man. And that description for Jesus' audience would be shocking and crude. Right off the bat, their minds would have understood this judge to be an ignorant man who doesn't really belong in the position that he's in. If you look into Psalm chapter 14, you'll understand. Paul actually quotes this psalm in Romans 3, but all the way in in, uh, Psalm 14, verse 1, David writes this, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. He goes on to say, Nobody even seeks for God. And that's this judge, right? And in a society that's so built upon their their religion, so built upon their faith and understanding of God, they understand there's one who has authority over us who doesn't care a thing about God and a thing about His fellow humanity. So this judge is, as Jesus will describe in verse 6, an unrighteous judge. He's an unworthy judge, an unqualified judge, a a foolish, crude judge. The first character we encounter doesn't have any respect from his listeners. This isn't a judge that you would want to go to. His heart is devoid. His soul is dead. And his mind is consumed only with self-interest. He's not a man that cares about justice. He's not a man that cares about honoring God. He's not a man that cares about doing the right thing. He is morally devoid. If you ever wanted a definition of callousness, it would be this judge. His description from Christ in verse 2 is meant to be shocking. Verse 3, there's a widow in connection to this judge. Right off the bat, she's starting off in a a lowly place in her society. She's without a husband. Her husband has passed. Presumably, she doesn't have a son or a son-in-law because she's acting on her own initiative. Verse 3, she keeps coming to this indifferent judge. 
She's persistent in her pursuit for her cause. And she's crying out to Him, give me justice against my adversary. It's a vague request, but the language communicates to us the seriousness of whatever it is going on in her life. It's not some civil suit or civil problem. It's not some trivial issue like my neighbor stole my cat. It's a serious, serious injustice for her life. Some sort of serious oppression is going on. And it's continual oppression. That's what the language lends us to understand. And despite the indifference of this judge, she keeps coming to him. Day after day after day after day, catching him as he comes out of the restaurant and as he goes home and as he comes to work. Pinning him down, asking, pleading, begging. We learn furthermore in verse 4 of the callous nature of this judge. For a while he refused. That word refused carries the intention that he he thought he would never hear her case. He intended to never give her an audience. He intended to never listen to her. He routinely would pass by thinking, here's this woman again, and I'm not going to give her any time. Verse 4 again, for a while he refused her. He was indifferent, didn't care. But afterward, he said to himself, and it's the same language that's used for the prodigal son, the younger son, when he's feeding the pigs and living with the pigs and eating the same stuff as the pigs. And he says he came to himself. It's this internal realization. It's the, the same phrase used right here. This judge finally comes to himself. And then in verse 4, the end of verse 4, Jesus reiterates his wicked and unrighteous condition. And this man self-admits in his heart, though I neither fear God nor respect man, I'm going to act. And verse 5 is his reasoning for acting. Because this widow keeps bothering me. I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. There's not, a, there's not a moral shift in this judge. He's driven by annoyance and exhaustion. The same thing happens. Jesus has shared this exact same principle in Luke chapter 11. He shared the, the Lord's Prayer as we've come to know it. And then He gives this parable about a, a friend who goes to his other friend and he beats on the door and says, I've got a, a company that's come to town. Give me some bread. I don't have anything for them. And the friend says, no, I'm in my bed with my children. Leave me alone. And the guy keeps banging on the door and he finally says, okay, I'm getting up because you're annoying me. Because you've been persistent, I'll answer. That's the same principle, the same thing happening here. I'm going to keep giving you some words because some of these literal translations help portray the, the picture better. Verse 5, when he says, she's bothering me, it carries the weight of hindering and obstructing me. Annoying me. She's getting in my way of living life and being a judge and doing what I want to do. That tells us of the kind of persistence that she has. She's obstructing me. When he says, I'm going to give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming, it literally means so that she will not beat me black and blue. 
so that she won't leave me bloody. It conjures up images of a boxer in a fight so that she won't wear me out and leave me useless. And that's the parable. There's this unjust, unrighteous, callous judge who has no moral inclination in him, but instead is persuaded and pushed and pressured by this persistent woman to the point of acting. And the whole point of that parable is saying this. If an immoral, unjust, uncaring, unrighteous, and wicked judge will eventually be pressured into doing what is right, what does that say about God? Remember, justice and rightness is so foreign and unnatural to this judge. And yet, even he can be pressured into doing the right thing and the honorable thing. And here's the glorious picture of the parable. God doesn't have to be pressured. This judge is nothing like God and God is nothing like Him. And that's the point. Verse 6, Jesus transitions to explain the parable. He says, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Hear that He gave in. Hear that He, he caved. He was pressured by her persistent nagging to Him to do the right thing. Jesus says, take notice. And then in contrasting fashion in verse 7, will not God give justice to His elect? Here's a man that totally doesn't care about the right thing. And then here's God who was good to His core. Who was just to His core. Who only cares about the right thing. Will He need the kind of pressure that this unjust judge requires? No. The lesson is God longs to hear the persistent prayers of His people and to act on their behalf, church. Why does He need our persistent prayers? Is it because He needs His mind changed? Is it because He needs to be spurred into action as if He's a lazy God? Perhaps He's sleeping and needs to be stirred till He's awake? No. Because God cares about our communion with Him. cares about our needs to answer them. Verse 7, Jesus gives us two questions. They're rhetorical questions. In verse 8, He gives a proclamation. That's the answer. In explaining the, the parable, the first rhetorical question is, will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? We know God, by His character, will give justice to everyone, whether they want it or not. There is no issue of wondering if God will do the right thing, the fair thing, the just thing. But Jesus is more specific in His question than that. In verse 7, He's referencing specific justice to His elect. The elect is another way of saying Christians or those who are born again. Will God ignore the needs of His elect. He didn't ignore our greatest need, did He? On the cross, through the death of His Son, He didn't ignore our greatest need. Will He ignore every need after that? By no means. 
By no means. He's invested too much. He cares too deeply. Will God not give justice to His elect? The resounding answer to the question is, of course He will. I don't know if you realize it or not, but God is a personal God. He's not unconcerned and callous and distant and removed and impersonal like this judge is. He's the opposite of this judge. Personal, loving, kind, compassionate, involved over every detail of your life. The lesson is an intimate lesson, church. There is no need, great or small, that's beyond God's care. God cares for His elect. The second rhetorical question, will He delay long over them? Over them is such intimate language to me. Watching out for them. Involved with them. Noticing their needs, their comings and their goings. Will He delay long? The answer to that is also no. He will not. Now it may seem like a long time to us, right? Because our timing is not God's timing and that's a good thing. And for, again, reasons beyond us, sometimes God delays in giving an answer so that He might display His love or His His glory or, or work things to His planning His purpose, or He might answer in a way that we're not ready for or don't expect or quite frankly don't even want. But He doesn't tarry long. He doesn't delay forever. Again, the lesson is because He cares too much. Jesus gives the proclamation, the answer in verse 8, I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. Notice the definite language of Christ. He will. He will give justice speedily. He will act on their cause. He will move on their behalf. Romans 8.31 Paul says, If God is for us, who could be against us? Jesus is making that clear right here. God is for us, church. Back to Luke 11. Jesus says in that text, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Or asks for an egg, will give him, I don't remember, a rock or something else? Jesus says, If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father do for you? Specifically, give you the Holy Spirit. But the principle here is do good for you. Sometimes we need to be reminded God is for us. And Jesus says so definitively. He will give justice to them, His children, and He will do it speedily. Which means, church, one day He will defend those who are persecuted for His name's sake. One day, He will avenge all who have been martyred for His name's sake. All who have been maligned and rejected, mocked, ridiculed. We endure such a, a temporary beating for the sake of Christ 
there's speeding a day ahead where God will avenge and issue justice for all His children. What a wonderful truth that God cares and God will act. Jesus wraps up this teaching and Luke wraps it up with the last phrase of Jesus with this very bone-chilling question. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? Seems to be out of place, doesn't it? Seems to be disconnected. But it's very piercing when you think about it. Jesus is essentially saying, will I find people who believe this? Will I find people who trust God like this? And walk with God like this? And ultimately, will I find people who pray like this? That's what makes it such a piercing question. And that question, church, is not rhetorical. Do you pray like you believe these truths about God? Because this is how God has revealed Himself to us. This is why we're able to always pray and not lose heart. This is what enables our communion, our continual communion with God. It's not what sustains it. It's not what secures it. Christ does that. But this is what continues it on. Growing. And vibrancy. And sincerity. Do you persist in habitual prayer knowing that God longs to be with you and hear you? That is the That is the faith of those who have been changed by the cross. That's the faith of those who have been transformed. Do you know God in this fashion is the question. That's the faith we're referencing. Have you come to know this to be true about God? In other words, are you born again? Do you know the care and love of God like this? Or are you on the outside? A Christian, is your your prayer life cold right now? Are you in in a rut? Are you struggling? Take heart. For God longs for you to come to Him. So much so that even His Spirit utters on our behalf with groanings too deep when we don't even know how to pray. God wants your communion, your fellowship, your relationship. God cares about the needs in your life. God cares about the details in your life. He will not be like the unrighteous judge. He's personal, involved, loving, and kind. I don't know what your prayer life is like. All I know is God wants you to be a person of prayer. He makes it easy. He instructs you and implores you, come be with me. And don't think you're you're ever going to wear me out. Don't think I'm ever going to grow uncaring or untired. Come be with me. I'm not like the unjust judge. I'm not like the people that you experience in this world. I will give justice. I won't delay. I will give an answer. I'll do it speedily. Come 
be with me. This passage, I think, is a petition to enjoy the presence of God in prayer. Because I think Jesus is so sincerely imploring us to do that. But you can only do that first if you've been born again. If the effects of the cross have been applied to your heart. And if they have, you've been saved to enjoy a sincere, genuine relationship with God. And in God's mind and words, you should take full advantage of that. Full advantage. God, would You make us a people of prayer? And that sounds, I don't know, so churchy, Lord. But it's not an abstract principle or an abstract thought. It's, it's that You want us to be people who come to You routinely, regularly. You want us to be people who delight and, and spend time in Your presence Make us this kind of people. People of persistent prayer. Oh Lord, I thank You that You're not like the, un, you're not like the unjust judge here. You're, you're way more caring and loving and personal. We don't have to, to beat You down continually. We don't have to pressure You. We don't have to bother You. To get you to act, you delight in your children's company. You delight in hearing our voices and drawing near to our hearts. If only we will have faith that this is who you are, that this passage, as, as wonderful as it is, isn't too good to be true. It's just both good and true. Make us a people of prayer. Let us know You like this. And help us when we are tempted to think that You're like the judge. To remember that You're never like the judge. You have so much love in Your heart for us, Lord. The cross is proof of that. And I'm so thankful that Your love doesn't just stop at the cross. It begins at the cross. It continues on to passages like this where You implore us, come be with Me. Help us, Lord, to take full advantage. Such a wonderful truth like this, Lord, cannot be proclaimed adequately enough with anybody's eloquent speech. Nobody can communicate the significance of this text. We need Your Spirit to do it for us. Apply it to our hearts that we might begin to understand its significance. That it might begin to resound in our souls and effect true transformative change. Do what only You can, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen.